Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, welcome. Today we're talking to someone that is a dear old friend, a human, a beautiful woman who Russell used to practice with back in New York City at Guy Donahue's Shala. And she is a practitioner both of Iyengar yoga and Ashtanga yoga. But more importantly, she is an author and a nonfiction editor at New England Review, a professor of English and creative writing at Penn State University, and an incredible human being, an incredible woman. She wrote the book that maybe some of you remember called First There is a Mountain. She's also written another book called The Memory Eaters, and she's currently working on her third book. The book that kind of brought her into my world was her first book called First There is a Mountain. It was published in 2004, and that was the first year I went to Mysore, and it was widely talked about because it was really the first kind of book that was a story about someone's journey uh, into yoga and it chronicled a year that Elizabeth Kadetsky was working with the uh, famous yoga teacher BKS Iyengar and discovering his role in the history of Indian independence. And it was a book that really illustrated the complicated dance between the East and the West and um, also moved into her experience with Ashtanga Yoga as Ashtanga Yoga practitioner. It also touched upon a young woman's journey with body dysmorphia and anorexia and this aspect of the yoga culture and maybe how the yoga culture um, kind of unintentionally reinforces some of these other issues that we have in the West that maybe aren't as um, obvious or widespread in Eastern cultures. So it's really an interesting book. I highly recommend it. If you haven't read it, first, there there is a mountain. And Elizabeth's study of yoga really began when she was a teenager in 1984, and she continues to practice to this day. Um, She's just has an interesting background. We don't get into it as much as we wanted to, so you'll have to hang around and wait for part two at some point because um, we really dove into some deep topics around spiritual practice, cultural identity, cultural appropriation, the work that she is doing now that's looking at stolen art, uh, stolen works of art out of the east so out of india in particular five different statues of the goddess devi of uh, durga and where they are in the west uh, different museums that they're being displayed at and also this movement of sending art back to the countries that they were stolen from and politics we get into some politics as well Uh, So I think you're going to just adore this episode because we're going into all kinds of different interesting topics and really leaning on Elizabeth Kadetsky's research, her background, her expertise, and what she's been um, 
learning over the years around this very complicated and complex interactions between the East and the West and how there's often a lot of uh, mix-up and miscommunication and misunderstandings that are going on between cultures, especially when politics get involved, especially when people are using religion to uh, uplift or support or bolster their political agenda. Uh, It's really, really good. So I think you're going to really enjoy listening to this podcast interview with Elizabeth Kadetsky. We're so excited to have her on and we want to have her on again because, um, again, it was just a conversation. We could have kept going on and talked more and more about her own personal journey, um, some of which you can read in her first book that I mentioned, First There is a Mountain, but uh, we're going into her future, into what she's working on, I guess, her present and future. Hopefully she'll be publishing. uh, She does publish articles on these works of art, but publishing even more about them because it's so interesting um, listening and hearing and thinking about, you know, what it is to... Um, turn our yoga practice into art and then also um, art in general and asana's art but then the connection between these stolen goddess sculptures from India as well as you know the connection to sort of how we approach yoga as westerners as sort of an art form and you know is it stolen is it offered We're asking these types of questions today. So I think you're really going to uh, walk away thinking a little more deeply about some of these topics. So let's dive in and get started. I can't wait for you to just absorb the wisdom and research of uh, this amazing author, Elizabeth Kadetsky. Hi, and welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, we have an old-timey friend of yours. An old-timey friend. (laughs) Do you want to give your intro? I know you have something special. I have an intro, (laughs) and um, I'm just just so thrilled. Um, Gosh. Our guest today is Elizabeth Kadetsky. Dr. Elizabeth Kadetsky, perhaps? Just Elizabeth. Just Elizabeth. <laughs> Elizabeth uh, is very much like the Paul Simon song, a three-time Fulbright fellow to India. <laughs> uh, her most recent book that we're going to talk about today, if we can get over, uh, if we can stop gossiping for a minute, yes, <laughs> uh, the Juniper Prize-winning uh, lyric memoir, "The Memory Eaters." That one sounds so exciting. Elizabeth is a professor of creative writing at Penn State University nonfiction editor at New England Review. Uh, Her selections for the journal regularly appear in Best American Essays, and her nonfiction has been featured in the New York Times, as well as many other venues. Uh, Her ongoing research, which we're very excited about, is a set of stolen goddess sculptures from India, which appeared as a cover story in American Scholar uh, last March. Her first book, which I have here with me, signed by all of the yoga students (laughs) at Guy Donahue's Shala, is First There is a Mountain, 2004, chronicling a year working with yogi BKS Iyengar 
discovering his role in the history of Indian independence, complicated dance between the East and West. We're very excited to talk about that. Also, for those of you, um, what do you call that? A uh, You give a warning to people when there's content. What is that called? A content warning. Content warning. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who are might be triggered by um, eating disorders, um, this book is a great a way of getting into eating disorders if you're looking to explore having one. We should talk about this book because like we were saying, we were just mentioning, I, I was telling Elizabeth that I was in Mysore in 2004 and this book, There is a Mountain, her book was published in early 2004. And it was the book of the year, the yoga book to read. And you were very, very famous at that time. Yes. (laughs) Amongst yogis globally, I think. The first Uh, time I had a student that was famous and it was was like a little thrill. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you both for having me. I'm I'm so thrilled to be here. And I'm just so honored that you... uh, know the book and uh, remember it since it's uh, kind yeah. of in its uh, golden age right now. <laughs> uh, but thank right? you it's so hard much to, for that great intro. It's hard to believe intro. almost 20 years ago, right? Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But it's interesting, like we were mentioning, there at that time there was really like, there was some technical yoga books, like maybe John Scott or David Swenson or Iyengar Light on Yoga. Like they were all about asana and there wasn't really a a book that was written from a cultural perspective that was a yoga book. Like nobody was writing about yoga as like a part of their life or a journey that they're on or spiritual practice or anything like that. So it really was kind yeah. of the first of its kind. Yeah, that was very much my idea for it, that I noticed a dearth and I was a journalist and a I was getting my MFA in creative writing when I started working on the project. Mm -hmm. And I just was very aware that there was nothing narrative and personal about the yoga world at all. So Mm -hmm. um, I set out to do it. And after afterwards, a few um, books uh, like uh, Elizabeth uh, Michaelis's book um, came out and a couple of other cultural histories of early uh, 20th century yoga. But um, right. I was excited uh, that I had found this uh, niche that nobody had filled yet. Yeah, totally. Can it's I incredible. can I ask you about uh, the jacket design? Uh, Kim Yuri and Josh uh, Ghostfield. Uh, I think Josh did the illustration. Uh, Yuri did the jacket design. This at the time when this came out, it's such a it's it's hard to describe like how. You can really tell someone who's been to India and is and is visited and who hasn't. And it's like, this is such a, like, it just, it had this kind of substance to it. Like, this is a real thing. This is someone who knows the, who knows it. Can you describe how that relationship? That is amazing that you picked that up um, from just the cover of the book. Um, so, Russell, perhaps you know Josh from the New York art world. Maybe. Josh Gosfield. He Maybe. is Maybe. a wonderful no. artist. I am sure you have crossed paths with him. And he um, he's fairly uh, well-known in the art world. Um, and at the time, he was doing a lot of cover illustrations. And he uh, and his partner, Claire, uh, were really into yoga. So it was a great match. And I got to meet them and talk about it. Um, Again, because this was really early for 
uh, talking about the culture of yoga. There was Yoga Journal, uh, but there wasn't right. that much else out there. We were still trading in cliches. So the obvious <laughs> first um, go-to was, you can probably guess, um, Lotus Pose. Right. And yeah. so yeah. I communicated with the staff at Little Brown and I said, uh, one thing, no Lotus Pose. And they were just horrified. They really wanted <laughs> Lotus Pose on the cover. And um, But Josh did some great work um, looking into Indian miniatures. So he found that background. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think the first version actually was um lotus and it was yeah. me it was it was not good maybe josh didn't do this part maybe this was just the designers it was uh an image of a woman from yoga journal basically in lotus oh, no. with my head <laughs> morphed on top um and it was supposed to look like it was me i was like well you could just get a picture of me doing lotus but also yeah. no lotus and then so we had all these negotiations and and finally <laughs> You know, finally, I was like, what you should really have is Tadasana because, you know, it's right. like, that's a the mountain. point of the title, right? Yeah, mountain. They were right. Like, um, yeah, they were like, that's kind of boring. <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> the compromise was Shirshasana, and then we had yeah. to negotiate further because I thought it would be really cheesy to have my face on the cover. So right. we agreed to do it from the back, and um, we did a photo shoot, and that's me in Shirshasana. Yeah. Amazing. It's beautiful. I think it's so nice that you don't see the face actually, because it allows you to like put yourself in the image, which is wonderful. Yeah. There's there's also a touch of this um, because it's your body and you can, and then the back is revealed in the picture. You can also see uh, maybe I, I feel like we might be touching on, on these kind of hot topic words, like, authenticity and legitimacy we might be kind of exploring that today uh but there is as a um professional yoga teacher uh there is the substance of authenticity in the pose though i would perhaps tell you to point your toes a bit more but in the back um you can see the 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 work the the ten thousand hours of work in your back it's like oh yeah she knows exactly what the fuck she's doing. She knows how to do it. And there's also kind of, you know, which is, which is also kind of beautiful. Um, She's a bit thin (laughs) and she's a bit too thin. And that's such a lovely (laughs) metaphor for the arc of the story itself, which, which touches on, you know, our, our, our culture in yoga for kind of craving being a bit too thin. And that was, you know, I was also triggered in the book because I would read it and it's like, oh, that sounds really, really good. I would, I want to kind of be a bit too thin. I want to be that. (laughs) I want to be that spacey. And I also adore and love the feeling of being spaced out from not eating where some people get really aggro. Like, you know, like you hear about people getting, Mm. Hangry. Like I've never been hangry. I've always only ever been, you know, just blissed out. Like, oh, thank God I don't have to eat. Yeah. Yeah. This is how like this is triggering for anorexics. I'm not kidding. You know, and it's but it's like because it's also a part of of Harmony and I, it's part of our psychology as well to be triggered uh negatively or positively, depending on your point of view, by eating disorders. Can you can you talk mm. about that? Was, was your editor, uh, your publisher, a big fan of having that 
piece to the book? Yeah, I, I mean, we could talk about the publishing industry, which continues to be extremely whimsical and quixotic, and they're always, you know, chasing the the latest trend. And so, the various hands involved in this book project uh, often had different agendas. So, right. the person who um, who I'm very grateful to for stewarding this book uh, from my idea, uh, you know, here I was a grad student in an MFA program with this crazy idea. And I found a, an agent from New York who came to visit the grad school and was interested in possibly representing people from the program. And um, he took it on. And his version of it was extremely melodramatic and a little bit cliched. And he would use, uh, he thought of it as a memoir, except that the way he pronounced memoir was memoir. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, oh. And so he he really framed it as this narrative of um, you know a woman. Okay, this was before Eat, Pray, Love. You have to you have to right. imagine yeah, yourself yeah. into this moment in history, which it's hard to even yeah. remember that that moment exists. Yeah. So I think he was hoping yeah. to to do like. We can't say the next Eat, Pray, Love. I think his vision was that we were going to do the first Eat, Pray, Love. And yeah. of course, um, yeah, more you know, sex. Definitely. I mean, yeah. and <laughs> idealism and, um, yeah. you know, uh, cliches about, you know, the other and romanticism yeah. about uh, the uh, East and a little bit of. Yeah. Thank you, Orientalism. So, I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, Russell, like we know from where you and I met in the yoga world and in Mysore that like this is not where we are coming from at all. And it wasn't where I was coming from. But he really liked that narrative. Um, so it was like a, you know, a woman in her, I, they also kept getting my age wrong. They kept saying I was in my early 20s, which I wasn't. I was already uh, around 30. And um, but that was just the cliche that they had in their mind. Like, yeah. oh, this young woman right out of college is suffering from anorexia and goes to India to find herself. And that was not the book mm. I wanted to write at all. But I did want it to have a personal angle. And um, yeah. and that was part of it. I mean, that was the reality uh, of where what I was dealing with when I wrote the book. So I thought that there was a way to do that organically and um, have that give the book a kind of narrative center uh, of like yeah. who I was and why, why I was doing this. And I think that that's true for any book that you need, you need the narrator to have that sense of purpose or quest. Um, but you can see that that particular one would be easy to exploit uh, by yeah. the publishing <laughs> industry. So, um, and you know, it's so funny, like the book by its cover, um, idea. I do really like the cover, but if you do read the promotional material in the book, um, it really tells one version of what they were trying to sell. And you can kind of see that the actual book is different from that. So you have to yeah. read the book and be like, wait a minute, this is like a journalist who is, you know, deeply um, yeah. committed and involved in the yoga world and also deeply committed as a writer and journalist writing the story. Anyway, I haven't said anything about anorexia. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, but the the eating disorder part of it, I saw how, um, you know, we see this in Iyengar's uh, introduction to Light on Yoga, where he says the, um, the best way to practice yoga is in a bug-free space. 
um, with no food first thing in the morning before you eat. And if you really, really need it, you can have coffee before you practice. Mm -hmm. He actually says yeah. that in Light on Yoga. So mm -hmm. it's, it is the culture coming from India of this form of yoga that you, you fast while you do it. And fast, of course, fasting has all those spiritual dimensions, of course. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But then isn't that interesting when you overlay that onto American culture and thinness worship um, mm -hmm. and exercise yeah. abuse, et cetera. And, um, and there you see one of the central contradictions that I was trying to get at in the book, you know, here were a lot of people, you know, like us going to India to um, meet these amazing teachers and practice as part of this amazing community. Um, some more committed and more um, knowledgeable or educated than others. And <laughs> I think, um, you know, we've all seen that, that tendency of people to kind of come and, um, see it differently, you know, see it as like the eat, pray, love version of, mm -hmm. you know, going to study with Patabi Joyce or, or Mr. Iyengar. Yeah. It's so interesting. I love that you brought up Iyengar's, um, let's just talk about Iyengar a little bit for, for fun. <laughs> and, and we can also get back into the eating disorder things. I, I have some thoughts about that also, but, <laughs> but I, I, I can't help but think of, um, this idea sort of 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 orientalism and, and sort of how you idolize like from the, coming from the west sort of the the ideal sort of mystical spiritual india that we really sort of create out of thin air yeah create <laughs> right that it, it, yeah. it has this sort of um eat pray love vibe about it and you're just <laughs> sitting over here in the west thinking about it as as edward said said uh <laughs> there is no thing called japan it is a thing the west has created right yeah like like mm. cultures are so so, so mm, much more good. dynamic and complex and mm. and you know paradoxical than, than this you know putting them in a box but um it just it reminded me because i also met uh bksi anger in person i went to uh, Pune to his to his center there, and he was in the library, and we were just touring. You know, oh, we weren't students, so we weren't me. really, yeah, in the fold. But um, went and purchased uh, his, I think it was the Tree of Yoga book, and had him sign mm. it, and mm. you know, had a little chat, and it, it was really funny because I, you know, been going to Mysore and and spending time with Patabi Joyce, who has a very jovial personality you know he's very warm and loving and laughing all the time and welcoming also a bit cynical yeah yeah i mean mm. he has i think he had a maybe a dark sense of humor but who knew because he didn't speak english that well but then you have Iyengar, <laughs> who does speak english quite well you know very well yeah and uh also i think potentially a dark sense of humor but also very <laughs> grumpy <laughs> <laughs> like all the time he's always like really strict and stern and i remember yeah. asking him like how are you today you know like i'm fine and are you having a nice day what's good about it you know like these were wow. kind of like okay <laughs> that's like new york in the 70s that's great yeah, right. 
So what, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about your sort of experience of, of these two different worlds and cultures. And could I just give a a footnote? (laughs) I was sitting in Batabi Joyce's office and I, and I pointed out the yoga journal that was in the office on his desk with um, Iyengar, or maybe it was Namarupa, but it was Iyengar Patabi Joyce hugging. Oh yeah, when they did that for his ninetieth birthday, and I pointed to it to Patabi Joyce. It's like, oh, Guruji, you have the Namarupa, and he and he took it, and he kind of tossed it over to me. He said, "Yeah, now we are friends." <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Because yeah, I mean, at the that time was... that you wrote this book, also and like, th- like through history, there was a quite a, yeah, a, like a little bit of animosity yeah. between the two of them, yeah. and between the two cultures, and between the two practices, yeah. and yeah, yeah, it was like yeah. a really big deal when they got together for that ninetieth birthday. And yeah, yeah, became yeah, it was epic and <laughs> epic rivalry. Although it's funny, I always imagined it coming more from. Iyengar's side. So that's interesting to hear uh, for Tubby version yeah. of it. Contempt for Iyengar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, what's interesting is it probably was equal, right? Like they were probably both sort interesting. of Interesting. Yeah. Well, Iyengar, um, I mean, Iyengar was uh, just such a wonderful 19th century uh character from literature (laughs) and how could you not want to write about him he was so complicated and so intelligent and so intuitive and you know really not educated I mean completely self-educated and so um torn and he had such a big ego and then his children um once they got involved um they could be extremely petty and um possessive and competitive and so I think um by the by the mid to late 90s they they were a big piece of what was going on at the studio and um they could be very mean and I think the the next generation um is often more orthodox than the this creative genius who broke (laughs) all the traditions in order Mm -hmm. to find found something extremely original and creative but as soon as you get to the next generation it becomes orthodoxy Mm -hmm. and so they were very very concerned about maintaining the orthodoxy of what Mm -hmm. Iyengar had created which is completely paradoxical because what he created was in its nature unorthodox and yeah. made up and and brilliant you know a brilliant system of his own so i think that that then reinforced his own sense of like he's doing it right other people are doing it wrong he's the authentic heir to krishnamacharya who had clearly abused ayengar anyway so um, hmm. You put put that family trauma into the picture, and then of course sprinkle in um, not just Orientalism but um, colonialism, and that mm-hmm. Iyengar lived through uh, you know really the worst of of, of the colonial era in India, mm-hmm. um, and was in the thick of it, you know, and was um, was really somebody who completely believed in yoga. 
as a philosophy and that that was the most important thing. But around him, the world was completely falling apart and people were um, trying to claim yoga for their own purposes. And so you Mm -hmm. see in his life story that he goes back and forth several times between different political movements, depending on which movement is going to help yoga the most. But but of course, that's not how the political movement saw it. They were like, oh, yes, you know, we have Iyengar on our side. We have yoga on our side. And also where he was in Pune, that was a hotspot. Um, Pune is where, um, um, oh God, I'm going to get his name wrong, but uh, Gosale, the uh, assassin, Gandhi's assassin was from Pune. Um, So Pune was a hotbed of not just the independence movement, but then um, these factions within the independence movement. Mm -hmm. And that never stopped. Once Congress party um, came into power after uh, the 1940s, um, the the right wing movement that slowly built up that we have now that tried to unseat um, the Congress Party, which were you know they were socialist more or less. Um, that movement really got its start in Pune as well. So it's a really political uh-huh. city, and he mm. you know was able. And then if you put on top of that that the um, the Osho ashram was also there yeah. in Pune. So you have these crazy, you know, Westerners coming through, you know, just acting really badly. And Recently exiled from California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that was a little bit later, but if you look later, at yeah. Iyengar's, you know, whole life story. Um, so, so there was a lot going on. And I think, I mean, in the book, I really kept coming back to his really fraught relationship with colonialism and post-colonialism mm-hmm. and his encounter with the West that I think I think he had a little bit of um, like survivor's uh, guilt uh, that he, you know, he was from this Orthodox background. He was not supposed to travel to the West. Um, if you're a, a Brahmin, Sri Vaishnavite, you're not allowed to go over the water. Um, there's a there's a restriction about that and he and of course many other great um, Sri Vaishnavites did it but going to the west was um, breaking tradition just even that and then also on the ship there are several different people from that um, community of Brahmins who uh, write about it um, going across uh, the ocean on a ship and not being able to eat the food because the rule mm-hmm. is that you can only eat food cooked by another um, Sri Brahmin. Brahmin. Mm-hmm. So he, um, you know, kind of starved himself on the way over. But then when he got to Europe, he had to give up that injunction and eat the food, but he stayed vegetarian. And there's a great story. I think it's in his um, autobiography or yeah, in his autobiography he talks about he was working for the you know great uh, violinist Yehudi Menuhin and I think before that he was working for uh, Clifford um, Gerst uh, another uh, musician in um, Switzerland and they would give him uh, basically he would eat peas for dinner because they didn't understand what a vegetarian diet was so they would just (laughs) give him the sides but they wouldn't give him yeah, yeah, extra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. That's also how I ate in France. <laughs> <It's the same. laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. 
Just the sides. Peas yeah. and potatoes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but no, like extra. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, where was I going with that? Like who he was as a person. And then, mm-hmm. yeah. And then by the 70s, he had this cohort of Westerners, um, not just Americans from all over the world, who became very close to him. And I think he saw them as his children in a way. And he was very attached to them. Um, but then it, it became difficult, I think, because uh, people in India felt that he was abandoning them and that they mm-hmm. should be his children. And so then here you see another rivalry. And there's this history of um, these petty rivalries that, that yeah. kind of follow him through his whole life story. Yeah. I think wow. it's super interesting to think about um, how the that film was made in the 1930s, 1936, with is it? Krishnamacharya. 30, with Krishnamacharya. Yeah. And then the, the Light on Yoga book. And I, I, I have the sense that these things were created because of his contacts to the, the European elites that he was a meeting and he was getting capital to make these things. But it, but it seemed like as positive developments as those, those were for, um, exporting yoga to the West or the allowing the West to extract these things um, and exploit them, however you want to call it. Um, It seemed to be a point of contention between him and his, and his teacher Krishnamacharya. Like it seemed like they created a really deep rivalry and even allow, and like, this is where Patabi Joyce's um, um, uh, enmity for Iyengar kind of also is because he's, but Dobby Joyce is nothing mm-hmm. if not incredibly competitive <laughs> and created I think they all between, were I think that's created, the point and created yeah. a, a culture of com- of competition in his own progeny in his own family and mm, wow um, <laughs> So sad. So sad. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, in fact, uh, I forget the details of the story, but um, Krishnamacharya was very angry at Iyengar, and I think it did have to do with the publication of Light on Yoga. And I, I, as I'm remembering, he told him not to publish it. And um, if you think about it, um, the the coming back to this idea of orthodoxy um, in the context of Indian orthodoxy, the okay, the number one thing you can't do is eat meat. You know, number two, you can't eat food cooked by someone else. Number three, you can't travel over the ocean. Number four, you cannot stand up to your mentor, right? Mm. But the elders are in charge. And um, even, you know, Russell, I know, I know both of you have spent time in India. Um, you know, children are very indulged and loved, but they are meant to be obedient. Um, mm-hmm. And that idea of... Uh, a paternal um, obedience it was very deep in the Iyengar teaching tradition mm-hmm. and I think in Patabi Joyce's as well. Yeah. But what did Iyengar do? Here we go, another paradox. He flouted his master and went and did what he wanted. And he wrote mm-hmm. his book, which he wasn't supposed to do, and then he completely changed the system that he was taught by Krishnamacharya mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. did his own thing. So, wow, how does somebody, you know, in mid century India, in, in this colonial context, how does somebody do that? What kind of person is that? It's just so fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's interesting that, um, that strength of character in a way, right? Like you were saying, he had a very large ego, <laughs> that was ego. My as well. <laughs> but, but, 
but for for almost like like a purpose and in, in the sense that it was what was forging his way forward like he had to have such a, a belief in himself and in what he was doing in order to create all of this newness in in a tradition yeah. that you know from especially his perspective was thousands and thousands of years old in a way right so like to be an innovator i think requires a lot of um courage. yeah courage but also confidence like that shows up in a certain way i guess a lot of the times right <laughs> well so that's a question i have for you what do you think um if you look at i what iyengar did and what patabi joyce did um mm -hmm. To what extent do you think that they believed that they were um, communicating something ancient and authentic? I think Patabi <laughs> Joyce did in in the sense that he would always he would always say though like he would always say this doesn't come from me this isn't Joyce yoga I'm, just gonna take I'm not this the hand grenade I'm going to offer it no, to No, but host. I think he really believed he was. <laughs> Oh man! No, a... don't you think Patabi uh, Joyce believed? I think he, he disagrees. <laughs> I think Patabi Joyce was a true believer. I think he really mm. believed that he was like. This is how my teacher taught. This and... is how my teacher taught. This doesn't come and to me. This my... yoga belongs to no one. And how many times teacher, do we hear that? And my teacher is learning this from uh, from Brahma Moham Brahmacharya. And then and then <laughs> Manju is sitting right next to me, saying he never went there. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Oh, the, but, the Tibet story. Yeah, right. the Tibet yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. Nobody <laughs> believes that story, right? I mean, that, I don't. I think right, like the Krishnamacharya's offspring does. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah, that I, I really Kaushta wanted to <laughs> pursue that further. Um, right. Yeah. That, you, and also, you the did story a whole. Of, you did a whole bunch of research on this topic of of how far I back did. it goes. You went yeah. and looked at the ancient readings. Well, no, but they've no, never there, found that that the one that got eaten the by the ants. No, no, but yes. she, but she, she Thank went you, and she, rats. she did a, she did a, um, you did investigative journalism on this topic. And yeah, what did you I did. Discover that no one actually well, believes it. Yeah, nobody believes it. Um, that <laughs> the, the yoga, the yoga story, um, and that right that it was eaten by rats. Well, yes, that's true. A lot of manuscripts do get eaten by rats um, in libraries. But that it that this was there. There was the story about how Krishnamacharya went and sat under a tree, and the yoga Hasya came to him, like and, the Buddha, and then he yeah, transcribed yeah, yeah. it. And so he did transcribe it. So that does exist. That's out there. Right. Um, <laughs> but whether that's the same document as the the rat eaten version, um, well, no, I don't think the... anyone believes that. And or was that a different text? That was a different text, the, the one that got eaten by the ants. Yes, the <laughs> Yoga Karunta. Yoga Karunta. Oh, the Karunta. Again, the Yoga Karunta is under great debate whether it ever really existed or not. That's right. Just, That's yeah, right. And then the yeah. trip. I I didn't really get that far in documenting the trip um, to Tibet, um, but uh, I, there was definitely doubt about whether it happened, and I um, I did look into. Uh, some of the royal palaces that maybe he would have stayed on his way to try to see if there was ever any evidence of, you know, yogi from South India coming. But I mean, you can't prove a negative. And so just because it didn't turn up in the sources that I looked at doesn't mean anything. There was um, 
I think there was one document from like the Viceroy where he was given a visa. Yeah, um, yeah. Ashtub puts a, a a photocopy of that in his in or maybe his his Deskachar's book has a it's photocopy Deskachar. of that Viceroy visa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's all we have. But even even still, um, I, I think that. Okay, so there are the medieval yoga texts, and then um, there's kind of a blip, and then we get to Krishnamacharya and some other people in the early 19th century, um, I mean, sorry, late 19th century, early 20th century, who were practicing yoga. And the medieval yoga is very varied. There's quite... There, there's quite a lot going on. Um, like there were those um, cults where people would raise an arm in the air for their whole life, um, mm-hmm. you know, or sit in a particular position and all these different versions of uh, mm-hmm. what you could call yoga because it was these, this tantric idea that like through the body you could reach um, universal consciousness. So Connecting that up to what Krishnamacharya was doing, even if he learned it from Rama Mohan, you know, up in the cave, who was how old? 260 years old. (laughs) Um, That like yoga, I mean, yes, yoga existed. There was a continuous tradition, but it was not ever one tradition. There were so many versions of it. And this one thing somehow did get to, uh, Krishnamacharya and they're the paintings from the Mysore palace. Like there's definitely um, continuity, but part of that is Western, right? The, the wrestling um, yeah. influence. Yeah. You know, I, 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 and the uh, gymnastics the, influence, um, which we all learned about in the, yoga body. <laughs> the yoga body, Mark Singleton's yeah. yoga body is, is something that I, 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 I passionately, um, Don't like. I have passionate feelings about. <laughs> and, Krishmacharya going to the Kavalyadam, uh, is that where he went? Kavalyadam, where the the Dutch Olympic team was training. No, that was the the palace. No, no, no. He went. He went up. Uh, don't make me stop the interview and go get the book out of our closet. Um, <laughs> there was a, in, in Mark Singleton's yoga body. He there's a there's a, a narrative point where um, Krishmacharya went north. Um, to Benares? To Benares and, and yeah. studied there. And yeah, at the same time to. that he was there, there was a Dutch Olympic team who were doing all of these movement exercises. And the implication uh, being that Krishnacharya learned these uh, these these exercise. movements from the West. And so uh, the, therefore, Shtanga Yoga is actually a Western form in its origination, which I find extraordinarily racist. <laughs> Because the the idea yeah. that any um, any indigenous people couldn't come up with uh, gymnastics of some <laughs> you know handstands and flips and backbends on their own, <laughs> I think is an extraordinarily racist thing to say. And I, when I look at a lot of you know like Persian um, uh, art, art, I you sometimes yeah. see you know twelfth and thirteenth century. Um, yoga poses Mm -hmm. and you look at them and you look at someone in a handstand or you look at someone doing something and he's like, wow, you have to be a fucking athlete to be able to do that. And human beings can do that all over the world. Human beings can do handstands (laughs) and you have to train yourself to learn how to do a handstand and a backbend. And it just, the idea that something can't spontaneously arise of its own accord and it just drives me up the wall. 
at the same yeah. time that yeah. like it, it's it, it, it's the same thing with the word Hinduism, right? That if we want to project onto India a whole form and we're going to call it this, then we're going to get it wrong <laughs> because Hinduism doesn't really exist. There's 10,000 right. traditions that are all south of the Indus Valley. Just as though, just as like there are 10 million yoga poses for each person, and there's, you know, 10 million forms of, you know, that the families have, have come up with. And in one particular case, Patabi Joyce learned something and it became very popular. And we want to, we want to legitimize it mm -hmm. because we want to extract legitimacy and authenticity from our colonial, colonial mindset. And I, mm. cool. We want to do that. That's awesome. That's how we like to run the world. Um, but it doesn't mean that, it, you know, it, it exists. And it doesn't also mean that it's negative that we do it. I think this is so rich because I, I, I agree. I do agree with you. Um, the Mark Singleton book, I have not read that chapter. I have to go back. I've, I've read, um, I read some chapters from it while it was in the making and I, I was excited about it. Um, however, Right. Okay. So great research to find out that the Dutch team was there and that they were doing their version of gymnastics. And that's really cool. But I completely agree. That's so reductive to then say that, oh, he brought it back. And that's where we get upside down poses, because you're right in the Indian miniatures, you see so many upside down, you know, rishis. And um, obviously this was going on um, this up, upside down stuff and right gymnastics <laughs> and physical feats for sure. But I think that it's really, um, there's a whole other layer here that we in the West can't see the extent to which we're being influenced by um, right-wing politics, the right-wing mm. politics of India. And it's really insidious and important to push back. And so the agenda um, of the BJP in India is to claim authenticity for everything. And, and mm -hmm. upon that premise lies a, a very dysfunctional, toxic, um, political regime that is extremely racist and that gets away with um, violence against mm -hmm. Muslim people, it, not to mention, you know, microaggressions, you know, on a scale that um, we don't even see in the U.S. So mm -hmm. to push back a little bit on that agenda that like everything, mm -hmm. you know, that, that India, this fantasy that India existed in a vacuum and mm. that um, this pure tradition that's purely Indian could even have existed ever is right. such a fantasy, but it's this fantasy that is being fed by the BJP government mm -hmm. constantly in India. And, and so I think um, if you study in India and you go to a yoga studio, you're likely to kind of hear that agenda in one way or another. And if you're a foreigner, you won't know these layers of context that are behind it. So I think it, 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 it's false to say that anything is purely Eastern or purely Western. And so I, I Russ, I completely agree with you that um, no, Patabi Joy, I mean, I'm sorry, Krishmacharya did not witness Dutch gymnasts and that's why we have a, a gymnastic-like element in physical yoga. That's so reductive and simplistic. But I mean, even, those uh, 
um, paintings at the Mysore Palace and the Norman mm -hmm. Somont book. I mean, I think those do document that there was this gymnastic tradition. And then there's also uh, the book by uh, Joseph Alter, which came out before I, before my book. Um, it's an academic study of physical culture movements in India mm. um, and how how they were tied in with the independence movement in the 1920s. It's a fascinating book. It's really good. It's academic, but fantastic research. Um, and that really did convince me that there was this long-standing interchange of Eastern and Western ideas mm -hmm. and that yeah. you have you have Hatha Yoga going on in India and then the 1920s you have all this physical culture coming in from Germany and England and um, things were just going back and forth and so now if you go into a yoga studio a, a random one in New York or wherever and they're like we're gonna do yoga and you're like that's weird that looks like gymnastics to me right like <laughs> It's just things are really, really meshed together. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. this goes all the way back to Alexander the Great, or exactly. not so great. That's what I was just thinking they... about. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and even, I mean, if you look at Ayurveda uh, in India, right, that has um, yeah. Greek, you know, there's so much overlap with Greek tradition. And um, a lot of the art history, of course, has Roman and Greek influence. So oh, it's absolutely. not to say that one is better um, and nothing good ever came from India or that people in India could never do something great. It's just that the world has always been a global place and we should embrace mm -hmm. that. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. On that point that. as an aside, which I, I think is really gorgeous is that when you look at Indian statuary and you see the same asymmetrical, um, uh, interest in, right. in the work, what you also see is a, is a more living tradition which is what we're learning about ancient Greek statuary is that they were that garishly colored. Oh yes. But they're yeah. still garishly colored. We call it garish because it's not white. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's so because we're so fucking racist. But it's the the the, the garishly colored Indian statuary is what Greek statuary looked like. Mm -hmm. And if and if it and if we had seen that, you know, oh. um say 400 years ago, our aesthetic would be completely Different. transformed. Well, and there, I think you do have racism because we look at Indian <laughs> artwork. We're like, look how garish that is. Or they keep putting the you know vermilion powder on it. They're just <laughs> making it so ugly. But right now, walk into the Met and they have this exhibit where they've repainted the Greek yeah. statues with the colors. Oh, <laughs> and it's and there's so, so such to poor see. taste. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I agree. That is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think this touches upon a really a really fascinating thing that we we like to talk about, you know, which is the fluidity of of these, you know, the of culture and knowledge and teachings and and I think like what you're saying is so crucial that it's like how far back do you, do we want to go to say that something originated somewhere mm -hmm. in a vacuum like it, I don't know that that's even possible because you can just keep going back further and further and further and you know we end up in in a place where <laughs> everything yeah. originated yeah. from it's like these so. <laughs> uh, Foucault's pockets of history like that's yeah that's it's it's mm. more right to say a circle than a line yeah but mm, I, I do think that when Tabi Joyce was like you know, when I say he was a true believer and he thought he was teaching something ancient, I feel like maybe it wasn't just the asana that that he felt was ancient, but it was like 
the whole tradition of yoga, you know, because for him, he was always talking about like yoga, yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, <laughs> pratyahara, dhana, dhyana, samai. That is ashtanga yoga. Like he would just keep repeating these things over and over and over again, which to me is like talking about yoga as, as a whole lifestyle discipline, not just like, you know, do the asana, even though that was what he was mainly teaching in a, in a classroom type setting. But if you sat with him and, and talked with him about philosophy, you know, that was really his passion. He was always reading the Vedas. He was always reading philosophical texts. He was always talking about the Yoga Sutras and, and yoga as like a whole, whole life practice, not just, you know, yeah. Hashimatsanasana and Shirshasana. And so I think yeah. he felt like he was transmitting something <laughs> that was ancient that way and that it was like a... Yeah. A living tradition that came from, you know, the, the Vedas, as far as probably he but, was concerned. You know, he was convinced in his heart that we we're at, at, at our base level incredibly ignorant. And so he had to start with the one thing that he could beat into our, our heads. Yeah, but which I was the asana. And then we go from there. <laughs> yeah, the asana. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I think yeah. I think what you're saying, Elizabeth, is really interesting too, this idea of using the body um as a tool or as a uh, a gateway to connect more deeply to spirit or to something higher, higher consciousness, yes. right? And that the body is this tradition of, of the body. And even when you're talking about Iyengar's, you know, when you read light on yoga, like, you know, not eating. And I mean, we got the whole thing too, from Patabi Joyce, you know, yoga is done first thing in the morning, 4am on an empty stomach. I remember that. People started talking about intermittent fasting and I was like, what? Well, that's just normal. <laughs> that's mm, what we do. Just what we do. Well, so um, this conversation just gave me uh, an, an idea that, um, hear me out, this might be totally crazy, but since, um, you know, I know, um, art is something that we share and that we've talked about a little bit. Um, and since my current project is about um, Indian statuary and artwork. Mm -hmm. um, so here, here's an interesting parallel that what if we were to think of our bodies doing yoga as a version of statuary? And so mm -hmm. if you look at the relationship between um, Indian uh, any object of Indian religious, Indian statuary, um, ancient statuary, um, the relationship of that to the text that it describes. Um, the text is a, a point in time. Uh, the, I mean, the text, the text isn't going to change, but over time, the way that that text is represented through artworks changes. Mm -hmm. So what if um, asana, as we know it, um, or as, say, as Patabi Joyce learned it um, at that moment in time, was an expression of the text that was as specific to its time and place as any one of these artworks that we're looking at. So it's not a pure representation of the text. It's an interpretation of the text or, or an appreciation of the text or an expression of the text. And I think then if we can kind of place what we're doing in history in the same way that we would place art history in history, it, yeah. it might open up ways for us to think about it a little bit more fluidly, like this idea of authenticity. I mean, um, I happen to be staring at my bulletin board, which has uh, like 30 um, Xeroxes of sixth century 
goddesses because that's what I'm writing about. And um, <laughs> these are like nothing could be, you know, nothing could be more authentic than these goddesses, right? Like they were sculpted in India in the sixth century and they're beautiful and they're stone and they still exist. And they, um, they tell a story of the goddess Durga and um, probably the text that they represent is the, the Devi Mahatmya, Ma, Devi Mahatya, which is this, um, really cool uh, tantric text that deals with the goddess and the power of the goddess. Um, mm -hmm. But so that text still exists and we can still go back to that text. It was written at a point in time and it's fixed. Um, but these sculptures were just that moment in time when they were sculpted, mm -hmm. how that text was represented in, in this physical form. So what if our bodies doing this, these shapes is a version of that? Yeah. Meaning we are the goddess. No, sorry, that sounds crazy. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> we are the goddess. <laughs> that's, sure. That would that oh, would see that's interesting. That that would allow me a much more um, um, grace uh, in uh, in my ability to to be compassionate towards what I'm seeing on Instagram. Yeah. And I could I can like, oh look, this is really this is a really interesting interpretation of the time that we live in. And this is a yeah. you know, these are they're actual representations. They're they're, they're art in the age of mechanical reproduction. They're mechanical reproductions in the same right. way that a statue is a mechanical reproduction. And it's yes. uh wow. No. Yeah, instead of being, I, I, I'm because I keep looking at this mechanical reproduction on Instagram, this moving image, and I'm seeing uh, a person that I have contempt for, rather than <laughs> seeing reframe, isn't it? Yeah, rather than seeing an art image that's trying to interpret history. You're our guru, Elizabeth. You oh, just like, yeah. Well, I like came in. I think we have to embrace. I remember when I was in college um, in Santa Cruz and uh, studying yoga, and I lived in this little cottage uh, downtown Santa Cruz. And across the street was the Kali Ray yoga studio. And of course, yeah. up on the hill on campus, we were studying Iyengar yoga. But across the street from me, every day, I would see Kali Ray go in with her long blonde, you know, braids and, and the <laughs> photos. And I was just like, that is profane. That is not real yoga. But I think that, um, I think we should embrace the Kali rays and, the Kali rays. Um, wow. yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're prophets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, that's a really beautiful way to kind of just like contextualize everything sort of like, you know, even, <laughs> um, what what's her name? Jane Fonda, you know, was uh, <laughs> yeah. a representation of the eighties and and the art form of aerobics. Yeah. And we can all kind of look back and appreciate that. With... Except for the leg warmers, we've got to get rid of those. No, no, no. Those are very helpful to stay warm. Um, <laughs> it's you know, it's funny. It's because you know, at, at someone in someone somewhere is listening to this and saying, "Well, you're we're we're." apologists for um uh colonial appropriation and it's like yeah yeah, yeah. sure that's um yeah. it's nice to have cool things uh you know japan has all kinds of colonially appropriated things you know like the flower arrangement and sumo and and uh buddhism these are all things that they appropriated because they were cool and 
you know, they also appropriated Elvis. No one's, I'm not upset about that. Elvis. You know, and I didn't grow up far from the man. It's like, you know, it's like, you don't really know Elvis. And it's like, well, <laughs> give him a break. They like him. It's cool. You know, so there's a, I love that you, you contextualized the, um, our conversation within Hindutva and the BJP, because there really is, there's insecurity there. And there's a pushback against colonialism and, and a nativist pride that you can admire, even if you're negatively affected by, uh, you know, racism, when you're in the yoga room, you can say, oh, this is interesting. Uh, you know, this is a part of that, uh, that mm -hmm. movement. Mm. And you can reframe the racism you're experiencing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we have so many rich ideas on the table. Um, I mean, appropriation. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I think I have the book. Uh, there's a great book by Paisley Rectal called um, Appro Appropriate or Appropriate. Um, and she goes through some of the <laughs> oh, cases. Yeah. I I heard about that. Please, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's a, you. Go it's ahead. a good book. It knows a good book. Oh, here it is. Or appropriate. Uh, That's such yeah, a great title. Oh, and then uh, the sub the subtitle is a provocation. And yeah. she goes through some of the recent cases where people have been um, publicly excoriated for appropriation, and and she kind of sure. examines them. One of the ones um, that she talks about is American Dirt, the novel mm. that. Um, mm -hmm you know, made more than a million dollars, but um, was considered to be, you know, racist about Mexican people. Um, I don't know. Oh. I mean, I don't want to throw away the whole appropriation conversation. I, I think it is important and there are power dynamics and um, yeah, I think maybe it goes too far sometimes. Like a friend mm -hmm. of mine who has really, she's white, she has really thick curly hair and um, sometimes she cornrows it while she got doxxed uh, for doing that because right. that's appropriating an African-American hairstyle. Right. So, but I'm trying to remember uh, from the book Appropriate, I think that she comes up with not exactly a rubric, but a way of thinking about um, when one might be doing something appropriative um, in a way that is harmful uh, mm -hmm. versus doing something appropriative that is celebrating the great, you know, mm -hmm. diversity of and global context of humanity. And so is if it's harming someone, um, maybe that's where we practice our yeah. ahimsa. Yeah. Well, well then yeah. that's a really nice segue about your your current research. I wonder if you could talk about are the stolen these, goddesses. Are these, you know, <laughs> we have a number of stolen statues. No, no, we bought them. Uh, it's hard to say. They were purchased. It's hard to say, you know, sometimes, like sometimes you buy things, you know. That and were stolen. That were stolen. <laughs> Can you talk yeah. about this this work that you're doing now? Uh, oh, and we should also talk segue. about your book as well. But we should talk about your what you're doing. <laughs> so I... Um, for many years, I found myself fascinated by stories. Um, really, this does tie right into the appropriation conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Stories from a Western perspective of people who go abroad and cross a line, um, but don't really know they're doing it or rationalize it in one way or another. And so um, 
in my other writing and fiction, really, I had explored uh, illegal adoption and um, the and the archaeology trade all over the world. Um, so it was just always an interest of mine. And I had an opportunity to go back to India on a research project. And I thought um, this was in 20, it was 2018 when I wrote the proposal. Uh, I thought, you know, I'd really like to just explore the topic and see what comes out of it. Um, so in 2019, I went back to India on a Fulbright scholarship, just thinking I would look into the the news that wasn't quite as big as it is right now about um, looting and the some of these Indian dealers who had been um, already arrested for you know getting involved in selling to Sotheby's, Christie's, uh, the Met, uh, etc., right. the big um, purveyors of art of uh, mm. ancient artworks. And mm. I um, I became increasingly fascinated by it and I wanted to find one case where I knew where the objects came from <clears throat> and where they had wound up. And I did mm -hmm. find a case which is this temple in Southern Rajasthan right on the Gujarat border. Um, and it really had not been written about very much, but I, there are a few references to it were out there. Um, and so I knew that they had wound up these sculptures in the Met, the British Museum, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Cleveland Museum of Art. So that was all I knew. I wound up having a really hard time finding the temple. I started reading the art history on these sculptures, which were brought to the West in the early 1960s. And I noticed in all this art history, ob obscure um, art journals, uh, nothing that I would have encountered in my normal life as a reader, <laughs> writer, yogi. Um, I noticed, well, for one thing, I started to learn a lot about um, Indian art history and statuary, which uh, was really fun for me because, I mean, that conversation that we just had about um, yoga and the body as a kind of artwork, um, mm -hmm. I, I, that was my window. That was my way into learning about um, ancient Indian statuary through, through mm -hmm. the religious context for it. Um, mm. But then I started learning a lot more. And, I, you know, at the beginning of this project, I didn't know the difference between Gupta and um, Kushan and Gandharan. But now I can walk into a museum and I know um, what school things are and, and even, you know, more or less what century or what region things are from. So that was really fun for me to just immerse myself in a topic and really learn about it or a field. Um, and this is what journalists do, of course. Um, but anyway, I started doing all this reading about these sculptures and what I noticed is that nowhere ever did anybody ever talk about where they came from. It, it would say, oh, they're from Rajasthan or they're from this town called Tanesar, but there was nothing about, um, the place or the people or just the context that they came from. How, so how I they wound were acquired up, from that town. Yeah. Or how they were acquired, for sure. <laughs> so I started um, I started asking around and um, following up each of the places where they had been written about, um, kind of going backwards through time. So they were referenced in a New Yorker article in 2007. So I contacted the journalist and um, 
you know, he was like, yeah, he hadn't actually gone to the temple. Um, he just knew the story about the mm. sculptures. And then going back, it was all art history. And I happened to know one of the art historians. So I contacted her and she was like, oh, yeah, I have I don't know where the town is. Um, and then I was looking on the map. I was like, well, I'll just go there. But the town didn't exist. So oh. I was like, well, that's not so easy. Uh, why does <laughs> it exist? That's amazing. So, um, yeah. No one thought to check so, that out. <laughs> yeah, fact checking. Hello. <laughs> so I, I wound up, you know, asking around. I basically had to go to the base, the area more or less where the yeah. temple was supposed to be and ask around. Um, yeah. And so this was with a cab driver who, you know, spoke very little English and myself who had, uh, you know, studied Hindi on and off for many years, um, you know, just kind of finding our way. And we wound up finding it and a I met a local family and they helped me. And it turned out that the, well, the name of the place in the art history books was wrong. And now was it wrong? intentionally maybe not because in the early 1960s really um it wasn't part of the conversation that right. uh, you would go to the temple and ask people how they felt about the object being stolen um mm. but it anyway so so that was just really intriguing to me and um i started doing more research and found a couple more of the sculptures in museums um in the west uh and two in india so i've been to India twice now on the project and I'm about to go back a third time. Um, mm. And really just learning about the context that they were stolen in and what was going on in the early 1960s that created this opportunity for this looting trade to begin. And then what was going on in New York specifically and Los Angeles that made it seem okay uh, to mm -hmm. export sculptures. Um, there's a lot of conversation about, oh, well, was it legal or not legal? Because there were these UNESCO guidelines that went into effect after mm -hmm. these sculptures were exported. Um, but in fact, there were laws in India and in the state of Rajasthan that made it illegal. So they were illegally wow. exported. Um, and then there's a question, well, were they stolen? Well, there's one version of the story that um, somebody at the temple was bribed and that um, that person arranged for the looters, uh, the, the temple robbers to come and take them. So is that a theft? You know, just what you're saying, well, I bought it, well, so is it stolen? Um, so it turns mm. out if you buy something stolen, um, it's still stolen actually. Mm. And right? um, I, I learned this because my bicycle was actually stolen um, off of a scaffolding in New York City in uh, around 2006. And, I went to the bike store on Avenue B and this guy who worked there was like, you are going to get your bike back and I'm going to help you. Here's what you do. Walk around with a lot, with a chain lock everywhere you go and look for your bike. And I, I am sure that you're going to find it and put the chain on the bike and leave a note that says, this is my bike. He used saltier language than I'll use. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> And you can take your lock off or I will have you arrested. So I, anyway, I kept my eyes open and sure enough, one day I saw somebody ride by on my bike. Oh my and gosh. so I, I stopped I her. Uh, yeah, it was this, uh, it was this young woman who was half my size. And I, um, 
<laughs> she had like the seat all the way down. I had it all the way up. And I was mm -hmm. like, that's my bike. And she was like, how do you know it's your bike? And I was like, because it has a license on it <laughs> from yeah, Penn right. State University where you have to register your bike. And she was like, oh, well, um, I bought it at the Williamsburg flea market. So anyway, I negotiated with her and I got it back. But um, okay. it was an <laughs> interesting thought home. experiment. And yeah, yeah. She, mm -hmm. she did not walk home with her bike. I was like, you know, you can be you are liable. I mean, I had to think it through, but in fact, if you buy a stolen bike yeah. from the Williamsburg flea market and the person <laughs> who it was stolen from walks by, you know, they can claim it. So mm -hmm. sorry, that was a long tangent, but um, well, these sculptures, okay, sorry. Interrupt me, please. Stop me. I was, oh, I, I was, that. it just reminds me that um, what, one of my, you know, one of my favorite activities um, whenever we go is, is to go stealing to- stealing things? Culturally appropriation is my cultural rocks. cultural appropriation and Orientalism is one of my <laughs> no harmony. Um, going to museum is one of my favorite oh, things. Museums, <laughs> one of my favorite pastimes. And if I can go to a museum and and put a good six to eight hours in, then I feel like yeah. I've really, you know, had a nice day. And and Speaking I remember of which we need these statues. Well, wait a second. Of them. Yeah, we do. Uh, so. <laughs> Don't, one of the things that I'm reminded of this is what the you're, you're talking about. This one is so beautiful. Oh, this one is in oh, really good shape. That's, we'll the, put that those in the show notes. Here, wait, I'll show you one more. Sorry, but Russell, I don't want to interrupt. Well, you wanna... can thank Harmony for that. She's the one that needs to apologize. Oh, wow. See, yeah, that has all gorgeous. kinds of influence from Greco-Roman civilization. Talk about theft. I mean, come on. It's <laughs> beautiful. That's appropriation yeah. from Greco-Roman civilization right there. <laughs> um, so it's so I, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the museum and how much I enjoy the museum, how much I enjoy the opportunity that's afforded to me by living in a socialist utopia like the United States where I can go to a museum <laughs> and, and these things are, are made available to me uh, as, a, as a citizen. Um, and yeah, I'm reminded of, of an art professor who once said to me, he's like, you know, the thing about museum is that it's, it's, a, it's not a museum, it's a mortuary. And it's mm. full of dead things that no longer serve uh, a purpose um, to, mm. to people. You know, so these oh. things used to be alive somewhere and you know even mm. even if a painting is in someone's home it's alive in a way that it's no longer yeah. alive in, outside of the the context of the relationship between artist and audience in a museum and the same is true of of sculptures you know sculptures especially um indian statuaries like uh, these things are meant to be closed up at night so they can be um uh they can they can be can made sleep they can sleep and be made safe. And then you open them in the morning with puja, mm -hmm. which brings mm -hmm. energy into them. They become alive mm -hmm. and you become alive as you go through the, the process of, of puja. Mm -hmm. They're dead sitting in these boxes. You're looking at yeah. dead sculptures. And, yeah. and so the, the, the ethics of having anything in a museum is up for discussion. And I think you see that you're seeing that I think a, a lot of different places today, people are talking about whether or not mm. stuff should be given back. And, 
and because these if this if this sculpture that you're referring to was in Rajasthan in this in this community they would keep the sculpture alive rather than yep. just you know putting up yep. like saw the yep. the corpse of Peter the Great in Moscow it's like that's that's that should be buried no one should have that corpse <laughs> Wow. Or the Lenin, like wow. they should put Lenin in the ground. They shouldn't have him in a box like that. <laughs> so, do you, Russell? Do you feel like your identity as a um, as an artist on one side and as a yogi on the other side are they in conflict at all when you think of um, this problem of the beautiful Indian sculpture, religious sculpture in a museum? Absolutely, because the the sculpture doesn't belong there. It, it, and I look at it, and I'm at this stage in my life. Um, I look at it, and it like, and it is unseemly to see an ancient uh, Indian sculpture in the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, but we enjoy it nonetheless. I'm really happy <laughs> as a as a Yahoo yeah. who grew up yeah. downstate Illinois. <laughs> To have had yeah. the opportunity to see those things <laughs> right. is really cool, and it was a f- made a f- made uh, it was made available to me because my country is a colonial superpower, <laughs> and like that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting this this conversation about this sta- because there are statues <laughs> that are are made in India that aren't like murtis that aren't like holy statues in churches. They're just like made for artistic purposes. Um, and it was interesting. A friend of mine told me a fascinating story about leaving India and having his, I think he was leaving India and he had a carry on bag and he got stopped Oh, yeah. and they had asked wow. him what was in it. And he said a statue that he, you know, he had bought it and <gasps> they gave him a really hard time. And they said, you can't take wow. statues. He was yes, like, you can. He was like, but I bought it in a store. <laughs> like, and then he, I mean, wow. he, they were like making a really big deal out of it. And I was like, that's so weird. That's I've exported again, statues from India all the time. That's again, the influence of the BJP on normal interactions. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, he, he was also just like, listen, if you want it back, like, I mean, take it back. I, I didn't have a plane to catch. I got to go. Yeah. But- was it ancient or was it new? No. It was, it, I mean, it was new. I don't know how old it was, but it definitely wasn't ancient. You know, he, he purchased it. Yeah, that, that is so uh, interesting. Noah. I mean, that, because that brings up some, that that actually shows you what's going on with the BJP mm-hmm. in India. Because uh, the law is, I think it's 100 years. You can't right. export anything more than 100 years old. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it does not surprise me at all that somebody working at customs would right. have conflated this idea that anything that is religious or holy or spiritual cannot be exported because it is the God. But if mm-hmm. you think about it, even those little trinkets like the Ganesh that you would put on yeah. your, on your car dashboard. I mean, that is a Murti. I mean, it is right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's yeah. like something you could, you could worship. Totally. Um, no, I think it's I really mean, the- complicated. Yeah. And that's, I mean, kind of the interesting thing I think about Indian culture is, I mean, pretty much anything that you want to, I mean, a stone, right? I mean, we've taken stones home from the ganja that are in the shape of a lingam. I mean, wow. is it a lingam? Is it a rock? I don't know. right? I, yeah, I, pro- I project lingams everywhere I look. <laughs> 
So, mm. I mean, in India, like you can, you can kind of, they sell them too in shops, like rocks, you know, yeah, stones. Rocks that look like, <laughs> well, and again, I think this comes back to the conversation about appropriation. Um, things are so polarized right now and yeah. black and white. And so this idea that, oh, well, anything, you know, if you cornrow your hair, uh, you're being appropriative right. as opposed to a more nuanced view, like in the, in the book that we were just looking at, um, where it's like, well, is it causing harm um, or yeah. is it taking it from someplace where it would have life? Um, so yeah, Russell, I really liked your description of, um, you know, you go, you do puja, you know, the life, the life force mm -hmm. flows between every body present in that situation mm -hmm. and um, what is happening in a museum. But I think, I mean, you know, the, the kooky uh, Kandinsky book about um, on the spiritual in art. And um, in that book, he, um, he would say the opposite that when you have an artistic experience, that's the life force, you know, that's, that's mm -hmm. the, the communion with the object and that um, mm. you could have that with a sculpture. I mean, in a good museum yeah. that is drawing people into it and that has that kind of, to be appropriative, a kind of feng shui, you know, of like air, yeah. light, life, people moving through it. Um, yeah. That's the ideal. But then there are the bad museums where nobody As goes. Right. I, as an example, I could, I could to set this up for you and our and our, and our listeners at home. You, imagine um, uh, Trump had made a, a deal. This is impossible, <laughs> but made a deal with the local uh, Karnataka government, and um, they dug up the Nandi bull on Chamundi Hill, <laughs> and uh, took it and and they sat it. Uh, you know, outside of the new modernist wing of the Art Institute of Chicago right. and sat it there in Grant Park. And that's where the Nandi Bull is now. And that whole kind of, all of those uh, living traditions of worshiping the Nandi yeah. Bull and and doing, um, uh, what's it, Abhisheka? Abhi, Abhi yeah. Doing Abhisheka on the bull, around walking it. around the yeah. bull, pouring milk on the bull. Mm. You know, all that's gone. And it's just, you know, teenagers spray painting their names on it. And that gets cleaned <laughs> oh, off every couple of days. You know, it's at a certain point, it's a disgrace. Yeah. You know, and you think, well, mm -hmm. that's not, yeah. that's not right. You know. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's such an interesting idea. So were all these statues taken from the same temple the same yes. area all six of them yeah They're like the a same set. temple yeah oh. the oh. original set was actually uh 12 to 14 sculptures oh wow and so it there may could have been two there. sets um but they yeah there could be more um the temple obviously is still there although the temple is much more developed than it was at the time um, mm -hmm. But they were all discovered uh, by an Indian archaeologist um, in the late 1950s. And yeah. he wrote about it. And then he went back and got photographs of them. And so he photographed 10 of the sculptures. And then over the next couple of years, um, after the sculptures were mostly stolen, um, a few more photographs appeared in the literature so it's hard to piece together exactly what happened and how many there were but probably there were 12 but here's an interesting twist um two of the sculptures were removed from the temple um by the indian archaeologist in the early 60s so probably before the theft so he right. took them 
ostensibly to protect them, but also to bring them to in, an Indian museum where they would be yeah. appreciated as art ah, um, yeah. by Indian huh. people. Yeah. And, and at the time, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine what Indian nationalism looked like then because it's so different from what it looks like now. I mean, right now it's Hindutva, you know, hundred, hundred percent Hindu, everything, everything, but that's not what it was at the time. Um, after independence, there were these um, highly educated, idealistic people who were educated in the West or ha or in a Western style who, again, um, embodied this um, global, you know, back and forth of East and West, um, Eastern and Western culture. And so this archaeologist who, um, you know, was Indian, lived in India, lived almost all of his life in India, um, he had been trained in Western art history and Western archaeology. And he and his cohort of archaeologists who also had been trained pre-independence they believed that this wonderful artwork was not properly appreciated mm -hmm. and that it should be appreciated not only in India, but everywhere in the West. And mm -hmm. they felt that this artwork was as spectacular, um, as sublime as Greek and Roman statuary. Mm -hmm. It was, it, it should be considered classical art and it oh, wasn't, sure. it was considered archeology span or anthropology. And yeah. so there was this um, mission in the late 1950s, early 1960s for Indian art to be recognized in the West. So perhaps some of the people in that cohort wanted mm -hmm. some of the artwork to go to the British Museum, to the, uh, mm -hmm. it, didn't, it didn't initially go to the, to the Met, but to the uh, Cleveland Museum of Art was one of the top museums yeah. at the time. So maybe that wasn't completely against what they, would have wanted at the time. Yeah. Um, so that's one wrinkle. And then another wrinkle is that these two sculptures that the archeologist removed and brought to a regional museum, um, those sculptures are still owned by the Indian government. And oh, one of wow. them yeah. was moved to a different museum in Delhi. And one of them is still in this, um, it's not exactly the same museum, but it's in the same town. They moved the museum a couple of times. Um, and you know, neither is being displayed in quite the spectacular circumstances than the ones in the British Museum. Well, actually, the one in the British Museum is in storage, but the one at the Met, which was seized by law enforcement, it was um, beautifully displayed. So then there's this question of, well, the museum in India just doesn't have the same cultural place as it does in the West. Right. And... Um, so if you think about repatriation fever right now and all these sculptures being seized from museums and being sent back to India, well, what's happening to them and um, what should happen to them, right? And I guess that's my question for you. What do you think? It's, <laughs> Where do you I think, think they should, what should be done? That's a fascinating it's, question. I think it's an incredibly <laughs> profound question because it comes mm -hmm. to the heart of the mystic and religious experience. And you, as a as an as an artist, you know I'm trained to look at things, all things, with an aesthetic appreciation. And aesthetic appreciation is also the yoga experience, you know. Oh. So and so, you know, these two things 
<laughs> She's writing good. it down for later. I'm writing it down. That is so good. I'm so fucking flattered. Oh I learned I learned that from from Richard Freeman. So I you know that um, <sighs> the aesthetic experience is also the 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 religious experience. It's also the yoga experience because you have a physical phenomenological response to to prakriti to beauty to things mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. is it becomes beautiful when you look at it with an appreciation for its elemental nature which is you know stardust mm -hmm. so you're this has all been re recorded mm -hmm. Elizabeth, so you can listen to this later <laughs> 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 so so um you know, you look at something, you make something, you go home, you make art out of it. And then, you know, it, it, I'm not making art for my local church. I'm not making art for my local temple. I make art because I like to paint my walls with it. I like to deck, I like to self-decorate. And hopefully I'll get hired to do something for the church, you know, and then I make some kind of Jesus painting for or the them city. or for the city. Um, so you, 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 the point that I wanted to make though, before I got distracted by my own train of thought, I'm sorry, is the, um, you have a work of art that maybe arises, uh, in a church and then it's taken out of a church and put into a museum. And then you should try and have the same aesthetic, uh, uh, the, the appreciation, the same as the same aesthetic appreciation, the same uh, spiritual response to that thing uh, that you do when it's in the church. Okay. But then, okay, well, you know, it doesn't belong to, to that, that country's museums. So you have to put it back in the church or put it back in that person's museum. And so, but still it ultimately, it comes down to the individual's ability to have an aesthetic experience. And that's so unique to that person and to what, mm -hmm. you know, they, they can, what they can do with their body and their mind and their whatever traumatic yeah. background they had, you know, so it's, um, but it makes me think like, I mean, when we go to a museum, we go there to a museum with the intention of having this kind of experience. We go and we stare for yeah. hours <laughs> but Sorry. we spend time yeah. with the art right like just looking and examining yeah. and looking and then the next time we go back to the same museum again <laughs> right and we keep revisiting i mean as i'm sure you yeah. do new york has so many glorious places to go just have that experience and be just inundated with with talent and expression and beauty and wonder and and it's it's so amazing, right? To have a, I mean, it is like a temple of sorts. Mm -hmm. It is a holy, sacred mm -hmm. place and experience. And in a way when, I mean, if all of these things were in personal homes or in personal temples or in, you would never have that kind of curated experience where you can just go to one place and just be like completely overwhelmed by you know, appreciation for beauty in all of these different contexts, like ancient, yeah. modern, all the different cultures, all the different, like it, it, it's an incredibly 
immersive experience that really you couldn't have if everything's pieced apart, right? It only happens when it's all together. But this is a, this is incredibly cynical what I'm about to say. But at <laughs> least in a, in a museum, the museum is is by design a a democratic uh, socialist institution that exists to um, to educate all of the people of the community. Yeah, yeah. Where the the church has a has a an uh, agenda as an agenda, <laughs> sure. and they're they're trying to mm. to they're trying to um, it's an anti democratic agenda. It's it's quite you know limited to a certain people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who you know who um, pay tithe to to that group. Right. I, I mean, and it's only one expression of something that has many expressions in a way too. I mean, depending on your point of view, but, but if the also, divinity comes in all forms, then I mean, it's, it's kind of beautiful to have all the forms in one, one place. I mean, just throwing thoughts out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, I, I mean, and I like also what you're saying too about, I mean, also being from like a Western context and educated in a Western way, we do have this sort of um, idea already of like a museum and visiting a museum and appreciating art and it being something that's like within our cultural context, whereas maybe other cultures don't have this kind of history of you know, they would go to a temple or they would go to a or colonizing other countries. Yeah, colonizing <laughs> other countries and making, you know, houses yeah. full of art, right? So it's not really in their culture. Like like in India, they go to the temple every day, typically, and like do some worship or puja or just like go in and, and have a have it's, an experience. Whereas we don't have that in our culture. So we're not having this experience on a daily. It's, it, it, it's, you know, do, do you go to a church to have a mystic experience or do you go there to, to get in line? Um, I think is, is an important question. You know, what, what's the, what's the intention? What's the intention yeah, of that, of that's that also building? Um, you know, you know, how you're, how you're dressed, uh, you know, when you are looking at something, I think can impact what kind of experience you're going to have. Are you going to have a mystic experience? Are you going to have, um, an, um, a critical experience. You're there to critically appreciate the context, yeah. or are you there to kind of vibrate in communion? And I, mm. I, I should wear loose clothing. Then is that I what you're saying? We, I think you know we could all kind of shut <laughs> hair down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think These that. Are... Um, I think. That, I mean, this conversation kind of shows how. Yeah, it's just it's how nuanced. rich the topic is, <laughs> yeah, and how there's not a easy, simple solution, and how uh, I would say that uh, we're in this craze right now of um, shipping sculptures back to India without a real clear plan uh, for mm-hmm. them, and that um, when you add to that the um, Hindutva government, um, which really sees the objects as symbols of um, of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And so the, the conversation in India around repatriation is about um, righting a colonial wrong, which is totally legitimate. Um, 
But it's a little odd because there's not that much conversation about um, the spiritual side of the sculptures. Uh, you know, what we were just talking about the uh, puja and how um, people would interact and give life to these statues on the one hand. And then there's um, really no conversation about the, the artistic value of the sculptures, which is perhaps appropriate since here we are Westerners imposing this art lens on it. Right. But mm-hmm. um, the um, one of the problems that you see right now in the whole conversation is that the sculptures, uh, when they get returned to India, there's not a, it's not transparent. You can't actually always find them or figure out where they went. And some of them do wind up in storage uh, for a while. Um, anecdotally, I've heard of cases where they've gone back to the temple. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of news articles, so it, it definitely has happened. Um, but the Indian government just opened a museum in Delhi and it's uh, the Museum of Repatriated Artworks. And so mm. it is a, specifically a place for people to go and look at all of these artworks from different regions, different traditions, different time periods, and appreciate them in the context of their political symbolism, which is mm-hmm. uh, that they were returned in this kind of post-colonial bid, a power power bid to get them back and um, mm. That's get back stolen property, which is totally mm-hmm. legit. But I, I think um, it is a little odd that this is so front and center now uh, mm-hmm. for the value of these sculptures now, because we were just having this great dialogue about do they belong in a in a museum where they would have one kind of spiritual, maybe Western right. and Western inflected experience, or do they belong in a, a temple or a church-like religious uh, environment? But but neither of those <laughs> is what's <laughs> happening, right? What's happening mm-hmm. is they're going back to a context where they can be appreciated as symbols of a, a, of an ongoing, you know, of, of the the power struggle and like the independence, you know, war kind of still going on, but reframed in this Hindutva kind of context. Uh, Because you're you're not seeing Muslim, you're not seeing Muslim art in in this repatriated um, (laughs) artwork. They have no desire to bring those back whatsoever. No, no. no. And you probably didn't um, see the the Muslims uh, colonizing these um, Hindu sculptures and bringing them back to Persia either. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, it's very yeah. political, which, which mm. is kind of a fascinating circle we've come to because <laughs> all of this, like, you know, this. I feel like the Hindu sort of emphasis and the political sort of power and and all of that, a lot of it, sort of builds with the consumption with the appropriation in many contexts with the Mm -hmm. movement of the yoga to the West and yoga being so fully embraced and taken on and, and participated in by Westerners, right. All over the globe and, and Easterners and Japan and Korea and China and all the places. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's, it's such a, a huge, um, I mean, gift, yes, that India's, you know, brought to to every country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's fascinating how it then comes back into this political agenda mm-hmm. and story. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. really interesting. <sighs> we have, we have, you know, what we haven't <laughs> done, which I always like to do, and we haven't, we haven't really had an opportunity, and we may have to call you back. Is <laughs> I really Jim. wanted to interview you Part and two. find out how. You ended up in our yoga studio in in New York. Oh, I wanted to find out how you know. I wanted to talk about your mom growing up in New York. I wanted to talk about you and yeah. There's so much, and you have such an interesting history. Yeah, well, you know. Oh, thank you. Maybe find we'll out have to well. Do part one, part find out two. how you've managed we'll to do keep part your, two. Your, your figure. Um, <laughs> you know, talk. Oh yeah. Right. And there's just so in the I don't even want to bring it up. You, this, you know, you have a you have an interesting history, and we haven't managed to do that at all because we had such a. This has been such a phenomenally rich conversation. Yeah, this has been so fun. Well, maybe we should just say, um, Russell, when I came to the Shala. Uh, on 8th Street. Oh, and, you know, studied with Guy and, and with you. It was such a great experience. And we had such a great community, a little community in that studio. And wow, showing up at, I don't think it was six in the morning, but it felt like six. It was probably eight. Um, <laughs> I was very, very grounding for me. And I, I'm just really grateful to have had that experience and to have met you there. And, um, to still be connected to you and uh, the, that you had all those signatures for the goodbye notes from everybody in the um, community and makes me think back about how I'm still in touch with um, many of those people and yeah. what a wonderful just moment in time we had together yeah. there. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. It was a phenomenal time. Yeah. Yeah. I miss it. Yeah, mm. I do too. Mm. Time just keeps moving on. Hmm. We're all becoming ancient relics. <laughs> I, uh, I I was thinking about calling this uh, episode Graceland because there are all of these um, references to Paul Simon. Um, we're, 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 are, aren't you? Aren't you the girl that was recently awarded the Fulbright? We talked about Elvis. We talked about um, Elvis. You know all of these. Um, you know having appropriation. Grace. But, Appropriation. We're not gonna we're not gonna dox Paul Simon for cultural we're appropriation. Not gonna go there, are we? Are we? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I love Paul Simon. <laughs> uh, I started on a blog about whether or not um Graceland was cultural appropriation or not. And I haven't I haven't finished it, but I started it. Um Definitely. it's just yeah. too good. You can't you can't it's dox so Paul Simon. It's just too good, man. But Anyway. So everyone can get your your books. Yeah, you have. Uh, first there was a mountain. The, first there was a mountain, and then memory eaters. And the memory eaters, which we give didn't us, talk give us about. A quick synopsis. No, no, we can't do that. No, We're gonna have a part two. We're gonna have a part two. Part two. We're gonna do a part two. We got a part two. Oh, what's you have a quick synopsis? How about I'll just give you the uh, yoga version. Um, so the the book is full of memories, nostalgia, the past, some research about uh, New York. 70s and 80s, but I wrote it all uh, in New York, um, starting in about uh, starting right when we were studying together. When I was studying with you um, at the Shala, uh, around that yeah. time, my mother started to get sick with Alzheimer's, and um, my life, um, you know, just became very ungrounded. Um, 
as it would for anyone at that time, but it was compounded by uh, my sisters um, being in recovery and living with my mother and um, my feeling of just the loss of our, our shared history in this mm-hmm. interesting time in New York. Um, and then uh, after a while, I was studying at um, Om Yoga, which was Cindy Lee's studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time that I was studying there, things really fell apart with my family, uh, my mother, mm-hmm. my sister. And I was um, biking over to Long Island City to take care of problems uh, where they were living. Every, got to be every day, twice a day. And I would just bike back and go to a, I had an unlimited pass. I would just go to a class at Om Yoga. And it was kind of my life, especially for one summer because I work in the academy. So I have summers off. And um, I have a lot of um, yoga philosophy in there and a lot of scenes, mostly uh, from Om Yoga and some of the teachers uh, and some of the wisdom that I got from them. And one of my favorite moments was when uh, Cindy Lee, who was studying um, with, a Buddhist, with a Buddhist teacher as well, um, she came in one day and she said, I was at this retreat with my Rinpoche um, you know, teacher and um, what I learned was um, don't worry. It doesn't help. <laughs> it just, it just struck me. It's like, that is so true. Like there is nothing I can do to make this situation better except, you know, showing up and being present. But yeah. my anxiety, my stress, my not sleeping is not helping anything. Um, so I guess maybe just keeping it, you know, focused on the yoga side of that book. Yeah, beautiful. Well, that's a great title for this episode as well. Yeah, don't worry, it doesn't <laughs> help. Don't it doesn't that, help. <laughs> that's how I'm going to think about cultural uh, colonial appropriation going forward. Colonial <laughs> cultural appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> it's all gonna. It's all just gonna happen anyway. We're don't just witnessing worry. the unfolding we're, of the universe. We're just watching things yeah. happen. Artificial intelligence is in charge at any rate going forward so we might as well just enjoy the ride <laughs> biden is a is a hologram that's what i learned from, yeah well it was so beautiful to connect you. with you and i yeah we really should do another interview awesome. with uh with oh thank you stories. so much <laughs> well this was just a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed so it, and I did take some notes. It was um, had some really good insights. I know you really enjoyed them. Thank you, both of you, both of you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me, your host Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a hard wind and the soil.